you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. I must have said 15 times earlier this morning out in the gathering hall, May 1st got here really fast. Um, and some, I think it was Dan called me on, well, it comes around every year. It, it, it comes. And, and I, I think this, I'm more aware of this first day of a month than many others. May 1st was my mama's birthday. Um, and Christmas is still hard, um, but uh, her birthday every year seems to kind of be the surprising thing that pops back up. Um, I'll wake up on May 1st and feel like it's a normal day, right? We've, we're, we're six years out since mom died. It feels normal. And then, of course, Facebook will be like, it's Nancy Foster's birthday. And it kind of um, brings you right back into your feels, right? Um, and I have been thinking about my mama a lot lately, and the the wisdom she had and the, um, how good a mom she was. I've been thinking about um, the like, ways I would want to raise my kids in, in light of the way she raised us and the things that she did that were hard. Um, you know, we, were, we were wild, well, no, my, my sister was a good child, I was the wild one. <laughs> um, uh, she never did anything wrong. Until we look back at family videos, she was always doing the stuff in the background to get me to do something bad. Um, and mom always made those hard decisions and, and uh, taught us well, informed us. She was um, not as outwardly pious as my father, and yet um, she was the one who brought us to the table for devotions, and she's the one who would uh, pray over us as little kids. And um, There's not much I ever think my mother was wrong about. <laughs> um, but she's a, a byproduct of her generation, right, and a byproduct of her family of origin. And what I've come to realize as I've gotten older is I think the one area that uh, she didn't deal with and that she was wrong about was mental health. Um, She grew up with a mother who who had lots of mental health uh, disease. Uh, Her father left early in their childhood and uh, ran away. Her mother had to work and be the the strong one of the family. Um, Lots of struggles across her extended family. And, and her motto was, well, you just deal with it. You just pull yourselves up and deal with it. Uh, Mom thought there was the stigma to therapy. Um, and, and that's very common amongst Eastern North Carolina folks of that generation. Therapy is meaning you can't handle yourself, right? And so as I got older, I kind of resisted this uh, kind of uh, call to therapy. Now, me and all my friends, everybody I know were in therapy. <laughs> Um, as a church, we tell our, all of our full-time staff, you have to go to counseling. Um, you have to be talking through and processing uh, your whole life. Um, and I'm in therapy, and now our offerings pastor is a therapist. Um, and he's a dear friend of mine. And we meet every Monday morning for breakfast. And, and usually it spirals into like four hours of this deep reflection on what's going on in our lives. And, and I've been so aware lately of uh, things that I've never really processed. Um, you know, we all have our friends, right? The people that we can remember from way back, the people that we keep in touch with, and, and yet if we really slow down, we can also think about those people who were deeply, deeply 
major parts of our lives, and yet uh, they no longer are, right? Those friends who uh, you grew up with and loved and adored, and yet you haven't spoken to in however long. Those friends that, for one reason or another, are no longer friends. And I've been, uh, I've been having some major um, breakthroughs on, um, on my childhood friends. My, my best friend growing up was named Will. He was our next-door neighbor. We, um, we did everything together. As kids, it was just cute because we were like little kids, right? We'd spend uh, most of the summer at their river house crabbing and fishing and doing these things. We would uh, go play at the pool in the neighborhood. And, um, and ultimately, we were the ones who led the charge as uh, third graders to steal our dad's beer and cigarettes. Uh, we were the ones who um, led the, the raucous that was Candlewick Estates for a few years there. Um, and we just kept getting in trouble. So eventually, I got locked down. Will kept getting in trouble, and so they moved him to a private school. We kind of lost distance. My parents were like, I know, I know he's your friend, but every time y'all get together, you do something stupid, Chad. Yeah. And it is factually true. Every time we got together, we did something stupid. Um, and so there's this distance imposed. Um, and I always imagined us reconciling. And then uh, the summer before our senior year of high school, he was out riding in a car, and somebody crossed the center line um, and hit Will, and he died instantly. And, and I'm recently aware of how, like, how there was no ever chance to reconcile, to, to, um, to restore that friendship. In middle school, uh, I had, uh, I've told y'all before, I went to the Falkland schools, I lived outside of Farmville, and then we came into Farmville for school. And I had really one deep friend in my sixth and seventh grade year, Chaz Rice, spelled with a Z, not Chad, Chaz. Um, just... Um, as kind a person as you could imagine. I'd go to his house, he'd come to my house, we'd hang out together, we'd, um, I'd go to his Catholic church and cross my hands, he'd come to our Methodist church and, and take communion even though he wasn't supposed to go on his side. We, we were like, tables open to everybody, come on. Um, just, just made middle school feel bearable because like, middle school was not great all the time for everybody. Um, it wasn't great for me, but, but Chaz was this dear, dear friend um, and uh, the summer before eighth grade, I went on a trip, did a few things. He went on a trip and did a few things. And I showed up for eighth grade, and he wasn't there. I was like, oh, he got sick or something. Like, he's missed the first day of school. And so I gave it another day, and he wasn't there. And so I called his parents and said, like, where's Chaz? I'm like, oh, we sent him to military school up in New Hampshire. Um, we literally never spoke again. Um, by the time we were high school graduates, we'd gone our own ways. I've, like, sent cards to various places that I think he works based on LinkedIn, trying to, like, find him. Um, and there's just this, this longing. And then in high school, I had these friends from church. Because um, if you're on lockdown perpetually, if your parents won't let you do anything besides go to school and go to church, you, of course, make friends with those, those kids at church, right? Like, um, and so they became, uh, they became the very... Uh, kind of epicenter of my life. We, uh, if I was with them, Dad trusted that I wouldn't do anything too crazy. He shouldn't have completely trusted that. But, um, but we, we had the greatest time. I had a, a 1996 Plymouth Neon, and you can fit eight people and a death metal band in a Plymouth Neon if you try hard enough. And we would go to Myrtle Beach every weekend and play in these like Christian rock and roll shows. This is a thing, just so you know. There's it's like a whole underground Christian rock and roll scene, at least back in the, the 90s there was. Um, so cool, right? Um, and we did everything together. And we had our plans. Y'all have heard this. 
Our plans were for all of us to go to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. You have to forgive me of this because this was pre-Kentucky, but this was our plan. We were all going to go, and they all got in except for me. Like, devastated. But I got into NC State. It's close enough. It's like 30 minutes from all my friends. I'll go there. I don't even care what I have to major in. I can kind of be near them. And I spiraled out of control that, that time of life. I should, never should have gone to a college that had uh, 900 people in a calculus class, that had 700 people in a psychology class. Like This should not have been where little old Farmville Chad went away to school. Um, somebody should have said, this is a terrible idea, and they didn't. Um, and in that spiral, I sent an email to these friends saying, here's, here's what I really understand about myself. And no one ever responded to that email or talked to me again. Um, and I have not seen any of them since then. And, and have been now scouring the internet to try to find how to find them and to see if there's a way to reconcile. Because I'm, I'm so now aware of this pattern from childhood of uh, not my fault at all, or completely my fault, and I don't know why, of friends who are no longer friends, which has made me more thankful for the friends who stick by me when I'm not a great friend, right? I have thought about the friends. Uh, Cameron Bibb is, is, was my best man. Uh, we moved up to Kentucky together to go to seminary. Like, who does that? Like, let's just move to Kentucky and go to seminary. Um, and he has modeled how to reconcile a friendship when you have problems. They had kids first, and we were all about racquetball. And once they had their daughter, Ellie, uh, we, we were like, well, can we still play racquetball? And Britton was exhausted because she had just had a, a kid, his wife, Britton. And she's like, no, you can't go. Because I, like, somebody needs to watch this kid. And I said why don't you just get a pack and play and put her outside the racquetball room? <laughs> that was not well received in the bed household. But what happened is Cameron came to me and said, that really hurt, man. This is what you need to understand about me. And, and I found that there are those people throughout my life who uh, in other areas have uh, found ways to stay together, to, to reconcile the problem, to, to make things whole. And I found that they're better at that than I am. And this has been like my mental health landscape as we come to today's passage. As we come to our gospel lesson, uh, this, this scene of the uh, gathering post-resurrection of some of the disciples. You know, over the last few weeks, we have gone from Palm Sunday to Monday, Thursday to Good Friday to two weeks in Easter Sunday where uh, Jesus appears to Mary and to Peter and to John. And then we came to last week's text where Jesus appears to the disciples gathered together except for Thomas. And Thomas says, hey, I want the same thing. I want, I want reconciliation. It's not the words they used, but that's, that's what he wanted. I want to see, and I want this to be true. Because they had all left their friend. We like to make Jesus be completely God, right? He's also completely human and saw all of his friends pull away at really his darkest moment. These friends who were there through thick and thin, who, uh, when push comes to shove, said, we can't do this. And so he comes in the resurrection and reconciles with the ten. He restores this relationship. He does what they couldn't do. He comes to Thomas and restores this relationship and makes it, uh, makes it good. And then we come to this story. Uh, 
Seven of the disciples are out on a boat. Uh, they are commercially fishing, which uh, at least most scholars suggest that is, they still don't get what's going on. Jesus has appeared to them, but they've entered back into their vocational identity as fishermen. Uh, you, aren't, you aren't hungry for a meal and you go fish all night with seven people. This is an operation. They're, on, they're probably on a boat belonging to the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. They are out making sense of life after, je- after Jesus' death. They're fishing, and, and it's been all night, and they've caught nothing, and Jesus appears on the shoreline. This has to call us back to the previous times the disciples have been on a boat and Jesus has appeared to them, right? Like, this is a repeating thing in the Gospels. And the, the beloved disciple goes, oh, wait, that's Jesus. Because Jesus had just told them, hey, I know you haven't caught anything. Cast your net over here. Peter is unclothed. Um, last week I called it naked, and y'all laughed real good. Marilyn just skipped right on over it. She's like, I'm not saying that word. Um, he is naked in the boat, wraps his tunic around himself, and just dives in the water. Peter, who had walked on water to go and meet Jesus, now is like, if I'm walking or I'm swimming or I'm dog paddling, I'm getting to him. And the story speeds up to this moment where Peter is on the beach with, with Jesus. He, Jesus is cooking fish over a charcoal fire. Peter's been pretty silent in the text. He denies Jesus by the charcoal fire. The text will tell you that. If you look in your translation, it will say charcoal fire. And then Jesus says nothing until let's go fishing. And then Jesus meets them for breakfast at a charcoal fire. It's the only two times this word is used. This is clearly a redemptive moment of of coming back to the place where Jesus had been denied around a fire at these times where Peter had said, no, I don't know him. No, we're not part of him. And now Jesus meets him there and says, do you love me? You know I love you. But but do you really love me? You know that I love you. Do you love me? And the text tells us that Peter's feelings are hurt, and he says, of course you know I love you. I have second-guessed many a thing in my life. Can you imagine what Peter had been sitting with um, since that Thursday night into Friday morning? This this knowledge that when push come to shove, he said, I don't know who this Jesus person is, and I'm not part of his crew. And then Jesus dies, and he's left with that. And, And Jesus is unwilling to leave that alone. He comes to the one who denied him and offers him restoration and reconciliation. Because of the resurrection power of God, Peter is now able to do what he couldn't do before. Peter has been a goofball and has messed up at times. He's been impulsive and he has wanted to be faithful to Jesus, but he messes up a lot. And Christ still comes back and redeems this relationship. This one who denies him goes on to become uh, kind of one of the super apostles. He becomes uh, the founder of the church at Rome. He becomes the one who preaches the Pentecost sermon. He's the one who uh, we believe his account is the basis of Mark's gospel. He becomes the one who uh, we trace our apostolic succession through. Uh, Those clergy who are ordained can trace their ordination back to Peter. 
And it's because Christ came to him in the power of the resurrection and reconciled with one another. He said, I know, I know you denied me. Do you love me? No, I do. When we preach this, this text, it comes around every three years, so you'll hear it again in three years. The tendency is to preach one of two things, uh, to preach on uh, the calling of uh, the leadership of a church, to talk about how uh, the leadership should uh, both care for people spiritually and physically. The other tendency is to preach this text and talk about the different words for love that Jesus used. In the Greek, he uses various forms, and Peter responds in various forms. Um, and those are lovely sermons. And three years from now, I'm liable to preach one of them to you. But I have just been so struck at this, this moment of reconciliation, this, this moment of Christ coming in resurrection power and making things right with his friend, even though he was the one who did everything right, of saying, you got it wrong, but I'll come to you again. The, the authors of the lectionary uh, or the compilers of the lectionary tell us uh, what verses we should preach. And they tell us to stop where Marilyn stopped. But there are like four more verses in John's gospel, and I love the next two. Then Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This is the one who had leaned against Jesus at the meal and asked him, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw this disciple, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus replied, if I want him to remain until I come, what difference does that make to you? You must follow me. Jesus just put Peter in his place. I, mind your own business, Peter. What I've got to do with him is none of yours. Your whole job now is to go and follow me. Uh, often we try to extrapolate, are we Peter in this text? Are we the ones who are supposed to go and do these things? And, and it's, it's a dangerous path to make ourselves fit in every moment because this was a particular reconciliation for Peter. And for us, the reconciliation is that we were distanced from God and in Christ's resurrection, we're offered new life. We are restored in that relationship and we are made whole. Even though there was distance, through Christ, God bridges that distance. This text is not about us being called to all go be pastors or preachers or priests or deacons. This is about us reconciling, reconciling with Christ, by reconciling with God, by seeing what resurrection power means for me and for you and for you and for you. We cannot make ourselves whole with God, but through the resurrected Christ and the power of the Spirit, we have been made whole with God. We all um, have our own lives. We all have our own vocations. We all have our own uh, paths that have been made or paths that we have made. Um, God has uh, different gifts in your lives and different things that you are passionate about. And yet, our collective calling is not to be priests. Our collective calling is to love God and to love our neighbors. And where Peter couldn't get it right until the resurrection, Humanity didn't get it right until the resurrection. But whereas Peter is now prepared to go to crucifixion himself, to die on the cross in Rome, we are prepared to go and love well. For Christ has bridged any gap between us. Whether, uh, whether this is your first time really thinking about the fact that uh, Christ loves you and wants to find you and make your relationship whole, or whether you have been in the church your whole life and you were deep on your journey to sanctification, the resurrection power of Christ is here for you. 
fill you and to sustain you, to, to, uh, to go with you out of the walls of this church, to uh, our kids going to school, to you going to work, to our graduates going off to their next phase of life. The resurrection power, the love of God will reconcile you and sustain you. I love that Peter messed up a lot. And then, through the power of Christ, is able to go and do what he did. Because that gives me great hope as someone who has messed up a lot. That through Christ's resurrection power, I can go and do incredible things. And that's my hope for you. That, that you, you will feel that and know that. Amen? Would you pray with me? God in Christ... Of course you would come uh, to those who had denied you, to those who had walked away from you, to those who um, couldn't see you to the finish line. Of course you would come and offer wholeness and reconciliation, for that's your story. At every turn, seeking to redeem humanity. Lord, we thank you that you meet us today at this table, that you come in the fullness of your grace and, and fill us that in the body and blood of Christ, we, we meet you. We're filled with your grace. And we're sustained to go forth and bear witness to your love. I pray this in the name of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen, amen. and amen.